Gracious Lord, we do pray that you would once again open our hearts and our minds to see the dynamic flow of your plan for your grace to be poured out upon your entire world. Lord, we pray that you will open to our eyes and our hearts once again the word of your grace as we see it lived out in the life of your early church. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. Can anybody guess which of our three passages I'll be preaching from this morning? I can tell you the two I won't be touching. Uh, actually, we will, though, be continuing our series, which we began this fall in the book of Acts, with this passage from Acts chapter 8, which I have to start by saying I have kind of a love-hate relationship with this passage from Acts chapter 8. I love the passage. I love the story. I mean, it starts with a you know, uh, angelic visitation, and it ends with Holy Spirit teleportation. I mean, what is not to love about this passage? What I hate, frankly, and, and it's probably not too strong a word, what I hate is what the church has done with the passage, or rather, I guess, not done with it. What do I mean? Well, here we are in Acts chapter 8, reading this account of an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, and his conversion. But if you have your paper copy of your Bible, your hard copy, if you flip like one or two pages forward to chapter 10, you might notice some of the, the, um, the headings that we have in there. Uh, and like at verse 44, or no, rather 34, what do we read? It says, Gentiles hear the good news in chapter 10. Probably something along those lines is what you have in your Bible as well. And yes, that's true in Acts chapter 10. But Cornelius and his family are not the first Gentiles, a word that simply means non-Jews. They're not the first Gentiles to receive the gospel. But you have to understand, as, as Europe became the center of the Christian church, and we have to own it here, as the Reformation shifted the center to northern Europe in particular... Cornelius, the Italian-born Roman, gets the limelight as the celebrated first Gentile convert. Meanwhile, this Ethiopian went home. He shared the gospel message in his own kingdom and founded one of the oldest Christian churches, the Coptic Orthodox Church. Frankly, Europe wasn't kind to them either. At the time of the Crusades, Copts were treated as poorly, actually in some cases even more poorly, than the Saracen enemies that the Crusaders went out against. The Pope, in fact, labeled them as heretics so that it could be justified, the ill treatment that they received. Their churches were vandalized, pillaged. They were also oppressed and persecuted at various points by the Muslim caliphates. And in fact, today, the Coptic Orthodox Church remains one of the most persecuted Christian bodies in the world. Fast forward to the modern missionary movement. And when Protestant missionaries sought to take the gospel to North Africa, they completely disregarded the church that they found there and tried to convert people away from the Coptic tradition. So as we approach this story 
in Acts chapter 8, we begin with something of a challenge to those of us who are contemporary Jesus followers. First, this challenges us to be honest with ourselves, to confront some of the skeletons in our closet of our own church traditions and repent of the places where we have uncritically imbibed something of a party line, whether it's slanted against other Christian traditions or theologies that differ from ours or even other races, classes, or genders. Now hear me because I'm not becoming a proponent that we go overboard and slip into that anything-goes permissive spirit of our age and accept all things uncritically. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise in discerning all agendas. What I'm saying is that we need, perhaps more than ever before, to be schooled in and saturated in the Scriptures and to understand in the words of the Anglican patriarchs, how Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation so that whatsoever is not read in nor proved by it is not to be required to be believed as an article of the faith. Scripture, not somebody's agenda, forms our agenda. Second, this passage also begins as a reminder not to stand in the way of what God is doing. Not to stand in the way of God, what God is doing. God didn't start with taking the gospel to Rome, the center of the ancient world. He started by founding a church in North Africa. And that gives us pause to remember in our own day, in our own lives, don't get in the way of what God is doing. And so we come to the text itself. Because that's the, the theme that we're going to see throughout. This begins, persists, and ends in and with the work of God. God initiates. God directs. In a very real way, Philip just kind of has to get out of the way. And he takes action when it's called for. It begins, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, Luke tells us. And he rose and went. Philip didn't randomly pick this route or, or look for a dude in a chariot on an abandoned road. Neither does he object. Uh, Lord, that's, a, that's kind of a desert place. Shouldn't I go to like more of a population hub? That's not very missionally strategic. Maybe I should just go to Caesarea, right? No. Philip responds to the initiative of God. And that's a critically important point to recognize as we talk about being the sort of church that brings Jesus' gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas. We don't just randomly pick areas or target people we wish we could reach out to and try to take the gospel to them. Rather, in the words of Henry Blackaby in his great study, Experiencing God, we begin by asking what God is already doing. We ask for God to show us where he's already at work. And then in responsiveness, we seek to join him in it. Ask God, where is he already at work? And then seek to join him in it. Because Philip goes where he's told, and then he needs further instruction. He sees the Ethiopian, but what does verse 29 say? And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, 
and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? The Spirit directs Philip at every step. And it isn't until Philip is clear on what God is doing here that then he takes the initiative and he asks this first simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? Because we have to recognize that the Lord was already working in the life of this court official. Luke tells us he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet. He was already a worshiper of the one true God. Many think he may have already been a, a, a proselyte, a convert, a convert to Judaism. He was seeking God and seeking to understand God's word as he read the prophet Isaiah. God was already at work in this man's life. He was already drawing him to himself. You know, Philip doesn't have to start from scratch when he begins sharing the good news. He doesn't have to explain that there is one God, the almighty creator of the universe, who has revealed himself and longs to know and be known by his creation, humanity. Clearly by his, his, uh, his actions, rather, this Ethiopian is already seeking. He's laid out probably a pretty significant personal expense to travel to Jerusalem from his home. He's laid out some further expense to purchase a scroll, which were not cheap in those days. And then he's sitting there trying and failing, but trying to understand what it is that he's reading. This man was seeking God. Philip's job then is simply to come alongside what God is already doing and help this man understand that what he seeks can only be found in Jesus. But notice how Philip begins you know, he doesn't waltz up and say, y'all need Jesus. He doesn't come up, you know, hi there. Could I have five minutes of your time? Pull a you know, piece of paper out. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, and he start walking through his four spiritual laws. No, notice Philip's method. He knows he's in the right place. He knows what the Lord wants him to do to have a conversation with this guy because God has clearly told him that. But despite the clear boldness that Philip could have, he begins humbly by asking a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? And actually, the text isn't explicit about this, but it's pretty clear that's not the only question that Philip asks this guy. I mean, Luke's account could only have come to Luke from Philip, and Philip's account of who this guy is, is chock full of details. As a friend of mine said to me yesterday, we were talking about this text, he said, the guy's a eunuch. That's kind of a personal detail, right? But Philip knows this about him, right? He's a court official. Philip knows this about him. He's asking questions, getting to know this guy. But he asks this one clear question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian responds right away, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. See, this guy needed no convincing. There's no cajoling, no salesmanship to steer the conversation to a gospel presentation. Philip simply sized up the situation and asked a really good question. Do you understand what you're reading? And boom, the Ethiopian says, no, maybe you can help me. Friends, I grew up in a youth ministry culture. I have to be careful here because a couple of my 
sponsors are here. But I grew up in a youth ministry culture in the late 80s and 90s that stressed the need to be ready to share the gospel with our friends, right? I even went to a youth evangelism conference in our nation's capital. And we were taught how to jump into a conversation with perfect strangers, actually how to start a conversation with perfect strangers, and steer it into an opportunity to share effectively our canned sort of elevator pitch gospel presentation. And like all high-pressure sales, we were more or less told the ABCs, always be closing, right? Bring them to that point of accepting Jesus and praying that prayer to receive them into their lives. Close the deal. The result... I, like many, perhaps some of you, was terrified of the fact that I might actually have to do that someday, right? How awkward, commandeering conversations and steering them in a direction that people don't even really want to be talking to you about? How awkward. The comedian Jim Gaffigan jokes that even the Pope would be uncomfortable if you went up to him and said, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus, right? But here's the thing. Over the 15 years of this journey of establishing this church, I've had countless spiritual conversations with spiritually hungry, spiritually curious people. And like Philip, I have never needed, I've never felt a need to commandeer, conjole, wheedle, or close. Why? Because like Philip, I've simply sought to respond to recognize that God is already at work in people's lives. Remember, it is God's long game plan to bring his gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas. He's doing it already. We're just joining him. Most of the spiritual conversations I've had over the years with the spiritually hungry and seeking run just like this. I want to know more, but I don't understand. Maybe... You seem to be somebody that is supposed to know some things about this. Maybe you could help me understand. There's nothing awkward about that at all. There's nothing scary about it. Sure, it takes some vulnerability to open ourselves up to having those conversations. And yes, sometimes you get those questions that you go, yeah, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know the answer to that either. But guess what? People will actually respect that rather than you trying to just spin some sort of an answer. I mean, God's infinite and unknowable anyway. The truth is we just know a little bit more than nothing because we've been spending our lives trying to walk with him and study what he has revealed to us about himself. Nobody's got all the answers. Seven years of formal theological education, 15 years of continuing education, I certainly don't. All I can ever offer is the same thing really that any of you can a willingness to have the conversation and then to look together for the answers. Responding to what the Lord is already doing in people's lives, it's exciting. It's stretching, but it isn't scary and it doesn't have to be exhausting. Trying to create opportunities and manipulate conversations, that is exhausting. Having a genuine conversation about what your disconnected friend or or co-worker is pondering, I'm confident that everyone in this room can do that. And it starts with asking the Lord to show us daily, Lord, where are you working already? And how can I join you? St. Luke goes on, and he tells us about the conversation Philip and this unnamed Ethiopian official had. 
Verse 32 says, Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And he quotes Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? In case you missed my previous point about how the Holy Spirit was moving to set Philip up for success, I mean, come on, right? The Ethiopian wasn't reading some, you know, random passage from, you know, like Ezra 2. You know, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bibai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. No. He's reading one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ. Notice again how Philip waits and lets this God-seeker guide the conversation. I'm confused. Who are we talking about here? Right? And then, all Philip has to do is connect the dots. Jesus really is the answer to this one. Sunday school was right. And so we read, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Then Philip opened his mouth. There was a time for him to get out his pen and sketch something on the back of his napkin. There was a time for him to share the gospel message that he had recounted so many times before. But not before the Ethiopian asks the question. And so finally we read, As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What stops me from being baptized? Philip clearly thinks to himself, Certainly not me. Let's go for it. And see again the point. Don't stand in the way of what God is doing. But this act also underscores the importance of the sacrament of baptism. When Jesus sets up his disciples, his apostles, for the mission and work of the church in Matthew 28, he doesn't say, go and tell people about me and get them to close with a prayer. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The sacrament of baptism is central to the life of the believer and the mission and work of the church. This is why whenever we bring someone to the waters of baptism, the church takes the opportunity to remember and recount. We remember and reaffirm, that's the word we use, we reaffirm our own baptismal covenant every time we bring a new soul to the waters. This is not just an external form, some perfunctory act to signify that we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. St. Paul says of baptism that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
As one of our old formulary texts puts it, baptism is a, quote, sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby as an instrument, as an instrument, something that does something, we, those that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of forgiveness of sin and of adoption to be sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. It's a physical sign, a visible sign that we undertake. That's why we celebrate baptism publicly as a church. But it's also the instrument God uses to do something unseen, to cleanse us from the taint of human sin and adopt us and make us children of God, excuse me, to confirm our faith and increase it as God's abounding grace comes to us, pouring over us, even as the waters are poured over us. As one author, citing a couple of St. Paul's passages, described his own experience at baptism, Christ had joined me to himself. I had put on Christ. By faith, through the work of the Spirit, all things were mine, and I was Christ's, and Christ was God's. Through baptism, God gives us all things in Christ. This is the ultimate aim of God's work, his long game, his plan for all humanity by bringing his gospel presence into gospel deficient areas. God is longing to have the hearts of men and women joined to him, joined to Christ, grafted into the very life of the Trinity, the life of God in Christ to be united with us for all eternity. In the mystery of his gracious will, he actually uses us. He uses us, his followers, his church, as we participate in his plan, as we join him where he is already working. He uses us to speak into the lives of those he's drawn. And he uses his church to bring them to the waters of baptism where they can be united with him. So let's pray. And ask once again, Holy Spirit, that you would give us your grace day by day, moment by moment even, to see, Lord, where are you moving? What are you doing in our lives? And as we seek to be the kind of people, the kind of church that is bringing your presence places where it hasn't been or where it isn't, Open our eyes to see where are you moving and stirring in the lives of those that you've put in our path. Who are you inviting us to get to know? Who are you inviting us to have these sorts of conversations with? What are you doing that we need to get out of the way of? But also, what are you doing that we need to be like Philip and run up to meet? Lord, by your spirit, guide and direct us, your church. It's in your name that we pray. Our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.